welcome to the latest episode of the Proximo podcast. This is your host, Maisie Clark, reporting to you from London. On today's podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by Paul Colatrella, a managing director with Fiera Infrastructure Private Debt and head of Fiera's US-based infrastructure debt team in New York, for a discussion on debt funds and their role in the North American market. Fiera Infrastructure Private Debt is wholly owned by Fiera Capital, a public Canadian asset manager with assets under management in excess of 180 billion Canadian dollars. The Infrastructure Private Debt team invests in self-originated private debt investments across infrastructure sectors in the US and Canada, including renewable energy, conventional power, transportation, telecom, social infrastructure, and sustainable projects. The infrastructure debt platform strategy is to invest in the less crowded alternative debt space between where commercial banks and more risk aggressive mezzanine and speculative lenders find their opportunities. Recent investments have included a noble gas recycling business in the US, a biomass project in Ontario, and a conversion of an existing power plant into a more efficient combined cycle power plant in Alberta, Canada. Before joining Fiera Private Debt in October 2020, Paul was head of clean energy infrastructure credit for Capital Dynamics, where he was responsible for all aspects of fundraising, originating and investing relevant to the strategy he brought to the firm in early 2018. Previously, Paul was co-head of the private credit power generation team at Aeros Private Debt Power Generation, which he co-founded as a business with a small team from TCW EIG Global Energy Partners. At Aeros, he was responsible for recommending all power-related debt transactions to the Aeros Investment Committee, and he also served on the Investment Committee for Aeros Energy Investors Fund, a private equity acquisition by Aeros he proposed and led the due diligence effort for. Prior to Erez and TCWEIG, he had a 14-year career in project finance. Paul has a Master's of Business Administration in Finance from the Fordham University and a Bachelor of Arts in European History from the University of Rochester, and he lives in Westchester, New York. Paul, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, Maisie. Exciting uh, to be here. This is my first podcast, so we'll see how I do, but I very much appreciate the invite from you and and the good folks at uh, Proxima. Well, it's great to have you, and it will be really interesting to get your perspective on this topic. So I think a good place to start would be with who and what debt funds are most interested in and involved with in North America. So let's start with which sectors are most attractive to debt funds and why. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and each, of course, each each debt fund is different, but, but you know, I think we have a lot in common. You know, the debt funds are still relatively new to the sector compared to the banks and insurance companies and other institutional lenders. Um, I think in general, because they are funds and not banks, we generally like to uh, lend money and keep that money out for a relatively long time. So we tend not to do, you know, revolvers and and things like that, but intend, uh, you know, to do term loans, whether those term loans are all drawn at closing or can be delayed draw, you know, depends on the fund. Um, But basically, I think most funds got their start in the energy and power sectors, not unlike myself and the folks that I work with at, at Fiera. Um, you know, we all tended to be, you know, some derivative of project finance people and the vast majority of project finance transactions, at least in North America, were around the energy sector. That's changing over time. Um, certainly that has morphed from conventional power and gas-fired power into renewables in all of its forms. Um, but, but a number of other sectors I think are, are equally attractive and interesting to funds, and that can be uh, things like telecom and data, whether it's data centers or towers or cables, uh, things in the social um, type of infrastructure, whether that's um, healthcare related, some dormitory housing deals, things like that that are going on, 
We also see um, quite a bit in transportation in all of its forms, a lot of little bit of buzz anyway around airports and airlines, uh, traditional toll roads, tunnels, et cetera. And with energy transition, maybe electric vehicle fleets and charging stations. So I think that's um, another sector. Um, in addition, I think there's there's quite a bit of, of emphasis and quite a desire to do things that have a, an ESG or a sustainable feel. So a lot of businesses or projects around recycling in general, or also uh, biogas, green fuels, you know, anything that I think has a, you know, an energy transition, zero carbon, lower carbon um, picture to it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's really interesting discussing kind of EV and EV infrastructure. It seems to be a market that everyone's kind of keen to get involved in. So what kind of borrower types do your debt funds more generally favor and why? Yeah, so so very generally, I mean, we tend to be, and and I think a lot of our our um, colleagues and competitors in the alternative lending funds tend to still have a project finance style of lending. So this is you know non non recourse um, asset level or portfolio level lending as opposed to uh, traditional corporate lending. So some of these loans do have a little bit of a corporate flavor to them though, but in general, the um, types of borrowers that that we're looking for. In particular, we're middle market focused. So in terms of scale, we differentiate ourselves by looking for projects that you know we would define as middle market. And, and that can mean different things to different people. But generally it's projects that are, you know, somewhere in the tens of millions up to maybe a couple hundred million in terms of enterprise value. Uh, so we're not trying to compete for the mega projects that might be, you know, billion dollars or several billion dollars. We think there's a lot of competition, not just among funds, but among all players in the capital markets for those projects. So we in particular are looking for those middle market projects um, and they tend to be driven by middle market sponsors. So these are sponsors who, you know, have themselves middle market, they tend to be fund sizes of a few hundred million to a couple of billion, um, you know, and they're looking for projects that are, are in that range size as a revenue or debt appropriately those of uh, investments. Yeah, and kind of talking of sponsors, what is the appeal of debt funds to sponsors um, and what types of sponsors do you think are kind of most attracted to debt funds? Sure. Um, so I think the, you know, the sponsors, or, or taking a step back, if you look at the, the project finance or the infrastructure debt market, the banks are still the dominant player. So it's a little different than when you look at the middle market sponsor uh, general corporate borrowings, where alternative funds have actually taken decisive market share. They probably have something like 70% plus market share. In, in infrastructure debt world, it's sort of the opposite. So the banks are still the dominant players. And it's it's hard to get data because so much of it is private, but I would estimate still 70% plus is, is bank driven. And when you combine banks, insurance companies, and traditional lenders, it's it's you know price still 80% or so. So the alternatives are the smaller up-and-coming sector. Um, but what differentiates us is when we're not banks, we're not as highly regulated. We um, have different capabilities in terms of the risks and the structures we can take. And we generally have a, a, a little bit more risk appetite as well. We're usually um, shooting for returns that are outside of where the bank market is. If you look at the bank market now, obviously it depends, but in terms of floating rate, it's usually a spread of anywhere of 100 to maybe three or 400 above whatever the index is, whether it's LIBOR or so forth, what have you. 
Um, you know, funds in general tend to be looking at things uh, in the, you know, mid single digits up into the low double digits. Uh, for example, the platform where I work, we're generally targeting 8% returns uh, or 6 to 8% returns, depending on the product that we're working with, basically. So there's definitely a, a risk differentiation there, and that's driven in part by cost of capital, and it's driven in large part by the regulatory regime that funds are subject to versus what banks and insurance companies, et cetera, are subject to in, in the US and Canada anyway. Yeah, um, and so if we kind of go on to talk about ticket sizes, what are your kind of debt funds in general, minimum and maximum ticket sizes? Yeah, and this is, I think, really interesting um, or, or kind of ties into a pretty interesting dynamic in the debt world is that, you know, most of the original debt funds, um, you know, going way back to some of the original players, you know, these funds were, um, you know, it started out like a, a general partner would raise their first debt fund and it might be a few hundred million. Hopefully they'd be successful. They'd go on, they'd raise the next one. It might be a few hundred million more. But there's been great success in, in a handful of names uh, that are the GPs in the debt world, maybe a dozen or so. And if you look at the iteration of all their latest funds, their funds are now all over a billion and some of them are multiples of a billion. So you take that, that big growth in those funds and that has had a transformative effect on the type of transaction this, that those entities do. So typically if you have a fund um, you generally have limitations within your fund documents to have no more than 10 or 15% allocation to any one project or any one borrower. In addition, there's only so many transactions you want to put into a single fund. Probably some natural number is, you know, 15 to 20 names in a, in a typical uh, unlevered, you know, non-CLO like debt fund, basically. So if you've raised $5 billion on your last fund, um, you can invest um, up to $750 million, for example, in any single borrower. In addition, you don't want to have, you know, 50 deals in that in that fund. So you're really looking for transactions that are several hundred million dollars each. And that drives who you talk to and, and what you do in terms of investments. And, and as you think about it, as funds get larger and the deals, the transactions they're trying to affect get larger, there's more and more competition. You're involved with the banks, you're involved with the bond markets, you're involved with the public markets. Um, SPACs recently, for example, the bigger you get, generally the more competitive it gets. So one differenti differentiation that we have at Vera is our, our fund sizes are still, you know, we think quite quite reasonable, below a um, billion dollars. And that allows us to play nimbly in the middle market space again. So again, these are loans. Generally, our minimum is, is $20 million. We sometimes will dip below that for a growth story. Um, and generally, based on the size of our funds, we you know, typically would lend 75, maybe $100 million would be sort of the top end exposure. We're always happy to club up with like-minded investors to do things slightly bigger, but that's sort of where we hunt. And, and we find that there's very few fund competitors anyway that are in that space, simply because they've had so much success at fundraising um, that they can't afford to make loans in that middle market space. They really need to go into kind of the mega projects, the very large loans, which lend themselves better to being rated or to being highly syndicated types of transactions or even public markets as I as I hinted at. Yeah, that's great. And I mean you kind of covered why you guys are kind of are able to cover that middle market. Um, but I think our audience would be keen to know how debt funds compete with banks when banks are seemingly so liquid. Sure. Yeah. Banks have a huge advantage in that because of their leverage and the regulatory um, capital that, they, that they, they can maintain, they generally have very low 
costs of capital, or at least they they invest as if they, they do have very low costs of capital, essentially. Um, so where you don't want to compete with banks is you can't really compete purely on, on cost in a, in a debt fund. It would be very difficult to do that. And I think almost you know unmanageable. So we try not to compete on cost. We try to compete on um, you know, other economic terms or non-economic terms. So in terms of non-economic things, we can, um, you know, we're able to sometimes be a little more nimble and go a little deeper around the story of, of the credit. So, so, you know, banks need to move a certain number of transactions through their credit committees. They can't afford to spend, you know, several months, um, typically on one transaction to, to educate people to, you know, do all the diligence required. So they tend to do things that they've done before that fit into their box, you know, utility scale solar with a uh, utility uh, investment grade utility off taker, proven technologies, all those things. Um, you know, we can go a little deeper. We can be a little bit more flexible in terms of revenue models, counterparties, things like that. Um, and that in turn allows us to, you know, charge a premium for that debt. Um, Banks are very good at doing conforming kind of senior debt loans, and, but funds are, are very good at not having to do that. So we can do things that are, um, you know, either unitronch type transactions where we put more leverage on a transaction than a bank typically would. Uh, we can do things where we're not necessarily first lien. We can do, you know, second lien or AB structures or even go up to the hold co or, or the mezzanine level of lending. And all that makes us more competitive. It also has an economic premium. And then we can just sometimes be more flexible in, in our structures in terms of repayment schedules or covenants, things like that. We're always disciplined in having good and meaningful covenants, but we can sometimes be a little more creative um, outside of the bank market in terms of the covenants that we need um, and in terms of the flexibility and flexible capital that we can provide, uh, hopefully, to sponsors. Yeah. Um, and when I was introducing you earlier in the podcast, we touched on the strategy of the infrastructure debt platform at Fiera, which is to invest in the less crowded alternative debt space between where commercial banks are more risk aggressive and mezzanine and, and speculative, speculative lenders find their opportunities. Um, can you elaborate a bit on how you approach the intercreditor issues? In other words, how do you and other debt funds play alongside the banks, bonds and mezzanine lenders? Sure. Yeah. So we, we do it in a couple of ways. And I think that's a very good um, description of where we try to be is we tr we're trying to fill what we perceive as a gap in risk and return between the low cost, but kind of risk averse bank markets and then the higher cost, but, but more aggressive and sometimes speculative uh, lenders in the space who are still trying to achieve, you know, maybe double digit returns in a, in a market that's seen a lot of yield compression. We think there's a nice story in between that in terms of risk and return. And we also think that story gets better when you focus on on the middle market, just the, the, the not small size, but the, the lower size versus again, the syndicated markets, the public markets for debt, it's less competitive, more creative environment. So one big way we avoid intercreditor is that sometimes we're able to be the single, the single lender. We're the only debt in the capital um, stack, basically. So that eliminates intercreditor issues altogether. Now we can't always do that. There's a lot of times there's projects that are either too big and require cooperation, or a capital structure that justifies, as I hinted at, um, a time where a debt fund might take a different security position, be second lien or, or be hold cub. So there we tend to in, in, um, negotiate intercreditor documentation. What we have found is there's, there's generally when we are going to be subordinate to other capital in the structure, it's because the underlying asset has such a strong credit profile that our, our cost of capital would not be competitive in a, in a pure senior 
um, debt structure. So in order to achieve the returns we like, we have to find projects where um, we, we like the credit, but where we can also still achieve our return. And that can sometimes be done through a, a structural or subordination you know, premium. When we're doing that, we tend to like to work with certain partners who are ahead of us. And who are those partners? Generally, it is more commercial banks and insurance companies versus, um, for example, uh, CLO type or, or institutional term loans. The reason for that is um, the holders of that debt, those debts can trade and change quite quickly. Um, and if there is an issue with a project, um, they those loans will tend to fall into the hands of um, more predatory distressed lenders who can be more aggressive and less cooperative. If we're working with, with a bank or a pool of banks, um, they tend to hold that debt through a workout. We tend to know them, know them both institutionally and personally. We have a good working rapport. We've worked together before, most likely. We trust each other. And so if everybody is working in good faith, there's usually um, cooperation and value that can be created through that relationship. So we tend to like having you know, banks or insurance companies who are, you know, generally not trying to take advantage of a situation, but instead trying to get what it is they originally sought, which is return of their capital, and hopefully return on that capital. And we're doing the same thing. We try, we tend to be um, a good partner, try to add value in a, in a workout situation, um, and work together with, with a, a bank group like that, essentially. So other than that, you know, we do things, um, you want to you know, in your documentation, you want to, um, one is to make sure that cash can flow through the different waterfalls of debt to make sure that you're going to be getting paid interest in principal, whether or not, you know, if a default occurs, you need to work through that. You want to be able to step into certain rights of the borrower. You want to make sure contracts don't go away in a real situation where you need to change the management teams. You want to make sure you can step into that and have contracts not go away, have bank debt not be declared in default because of things like that. So, so step in rights, assignment of rights and contracts, all of that's very important, you know, and, and gets, is, is the kind of thing you address in legal documentation. Yeah, um, and let's move on from fellow market players and collaboration there to governance. How do you deal with governance and how do you get approvals from LP investors for individual debt commitments or do they just have to trust you? Yeah. Um, so generally, we, you know, in our commingled funds, and also if we do something that's a separately managed account or a fund of one, we generally like to have investment discretion. We don't always have to have it. Sometimes with a new client, there's something, you know, that might be a little bit in between where they have certain rights and certain saves over over major decisions. But generally, you know, what we are selling basically is is our expertise. Um, and so, you know, if if that's not something comfortable or, or if that's something an LP is not comfortable giving us, then maybe it's not the right time or the right relationship. So generally our LPs and our clients, um, after doing very thorough vetting and due diligence, they do have a lot of trust in us. And we, you know, very carefully craft the documents and what our rights are as a GP, what their rights are as an LP. Um, but basically we usually have investment discretion. It's a very competitive market. You need to be nimble. Um, we ideally hopefully know, you know, more about these types of investments than than the client does. The client's trying to do lots of different things and doesn't have time to maybe become, you know, experts on the, the California power market or what's happening in uh, transportation in Alaska, for example. Um, but we do so, and that's where we we add value. So generally, we like to have um, within the within the governance of our documents, we like to have full discretion over the investments. That being said, we have you know, a very thorough uh, investment committee approval. Our investment committee includes a number of outside directors. Not every GP has that. 
Uh, so these are people who um, have industry expertise, but who are not fair employees. So they can act as you know very good fiduciary stewards of our, our clients' money. Uh, and that's generally how we operate. Yeah, well, thanks, Paul. Um, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. But thank you again so much for taking the time to join me on today's podcast. It's been a really interesting discussion. Thanks, Maisie. I really appreciate it. Hopefully this is uh, interesting and informative for your listeners uh, and appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Thanks again to Paul and thanks all for listening. I'd just like to take a moment to remind listeners of our upcoming Financing America's Infrastructure 2022 hybrid event which is taking place in Nashville across two days on May the 24th and 25th. More details on the conference and how to attend are available on our website at proximoinfra.com. Be sure to tune into the podcast again next week and see our website for the latest global project and infrastructure finance news. Mm -hmm.